Well, thank you all for coming for this last uh, Catholicism 101 talk. Um, I picked this topic, although it's not exactly like basic Catholicism, like you'd think in a Catholicism 101 uh, class. For, I picked this topic of addiction and grace uh, for two reasons. One is that I'd already written this talk uh, a couple months ago for another thing, and I've just been thinking about it a lot as a, something really important for us as Catholics to understand. Um, not just in the context of like chemical addictions, but the way that we get attached to things, I think is, is fundamental to Christian living. Like how do, you, how do you detach from things so that you can attach yourself fully to God? And also because I was going to, for this last one anyway, do something on Christian living and morality and sort of the reason behind um, some of the rules, so to speak, of, of Catholicism um, that aren't just rules, but are there meant to be like kind of guidelines for human flourishing so that we can be free. The object of God's law is not slavery, like to some law outside of ourselves, but that we would internalize God's plan for our life and so be free. It's actually sin that makes us slaves. Um, and God's law, God's law of love, especially of, of God above all else and our neighbor as ourself, is meant to set you free to live a human life. So we've talked in the other ones about um, prayer uh, who Jesus is and how he saves us. Uh, what was the other one? Oh, the human person, like what it means to be human and how to be a good human being. So this is sort of, I think, a very practical, hopefully will be for you, a pr very practical uh, look at how to do that, how to um, live a Christian life, be a good human being, um, but in the context of your faith, always with prayer as sort of the, the means to that end. A relationship with God is why you live the way you live. Um, Okay, so that's kind of the plan for the, the talk. It won't be that long, but um, I want to just point you to this book. It's kind of a little, it's not all together that technical. He's a psychologist, Gerald May. This was written, I think, in the 70s, uh, so even older than me. Um, and it's a, it's a great book about, from a Catholic perspective, on this topic of addiction, because he's a, he's a counselor who's counseled many people through uh, pretty severe addictions and himself struggled with addictions. Um, so he knows it from the inside out, but it's also not just sort of a wishy-washy Christian thing where it's like you throw in a little Jesus here and there. It's like he's a, he understands Catholicism very well, a, a rich theology. So um, that's what I'm basing a lot of this talk on is this book. But And I've mentioned this in a homily before, so forgive me for repeating it, but I love this scene, the Chronicles of Narnia, of the Turkish delight. Does anybody know this scene? You've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Um, this is a great illustration from one of the editions of the book uh, where the witch, if you know the, the story of Narnia is that these children, these four children who are brothers and sisters, two boys and two girls are on a, like a summer holiday at this old man's house who they don't really know, he's like some distant relative and they discover this magical wardrobe, it's like a closet and they go in there and they enter this fantasy world where animals speak to them, the first person they meet is like half goat, half person and he's uh, talking to them and kind of explaining this fantasy world that they live they're in, and <clears throat> they're wandering about uh, trying to kind of find their way around. And this one boy, Edmund, kind of gets cut off from the group, and he meets this woman who it turns out to be the witch, who sort of stands in for Satan. Um, Narnia is is just all an allegory for the world and for Christianity, and Narnia is an e eternal winter, and all the animals who can talk are complaining about how it never gets to spring, never gets to summer. They've been suffering in snow and cold and ice for years and years and years. And it's because the witch has cast a spell on Narnia. So Edmund, um, 
I won't spoil the whole story, but the children are integral in, in helping Aslan the lion, who represents Christ, the free Narnia from the spell of the witch. But um, before all that all happens, Edmund gets cut off by the group or from the group, and the witch finds him and wants to know what's up. She because she's protecting her little evil realm from any intruders that might help to set it free, and so she wants to get information from him about who the other children are, and she gives him this Turkish delight. Uh, which is like a candy. Uh, and the first one he eats, he immediately wants another one. And he starts eating more and more. And the more he eats, the more he likes it. But actually, it hurts because all it makes him, all, all it does for him is make him want another one. If you've ever had like flaming Cheetos, that's, to me, that's like what happens. Um, like, yeah, this is good, but all it makes me want to do is eat more of them. So, uh, so it's, it gets to the point. Uh, while he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it is rude to speak with one's mouthful, but soon he forgot about this and thought only to try to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. The more he ate, the more he wanted to eat, and he never asked himself why the queen should be so inquisitive. So he ends up betraying his uh, brother and sisters without even knowing it, because he's been enslaved to this object, which now he's addicted to. It's kind of an allegory for, for addiction. Uh, but that dynamic of tasting something for the first time, liking it a lot, needing more of it, until it finally you're, you're in this vicious cycle of not being able to not have it to the point where you're making decisions that you wouldn't normally make, that's addiction. Um, but it's, it's relatively simple, and most people have experienced it. St. Paul puts it this way, I do what I do not want. For I do what I do not want, but I do what I hate. The willing is ready at hand, but doing the good is not. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil I do not want. This is a, his little tongue twister. For I take delight in the law of God in my inner self, but I see in my members another principle at war with the law of my mind, taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Miserable one that I am, who will deliver me from this mortal body? This is St. Paul dealing with the fact of our concupiscence. I don't know if we talked about that word specifically, but that's the result of original sin, is that you have this disease called concupiscence, which makes, you, makes it hard to be good and easy to be bad. Okay, all of us have this. That makes it, it, The way I put it before was it's hard to be human. It's hard to obey the natural law. Um, and we tend to make idols of things that aren't God. And when you do that, you, you direct your desire for God at something that's not God, you get frustrated. But you don't stop. Normally what you think is all I need is more of that thing, whether it's money or power or pleasure or people liking you or being famous. Like, you get after some good, you think, like, that's what I need to be happy. The more you get it, the more you need it. Until finally you're just like, I have everything that I ever thought I wanted and I'm completely depressed and anxious. What's the problem? And then you get all sorts of other issues. But this is Paul just sort of saying, this is what it's like to be human. We need salvation. We need something to help us get out of this vicious cycle. So the way the Bible puts it is idolatry. Addiction is idolatry. Um, in the Garden of Eden, everything was meant to be received as a gift. Every bit of food that God gave them was like bread from heaven. Right? It, was, it was all meant to be communion in a sense. That The whole world was a gift to, to Adam and Eve, to human beings, from God. But it had to be received as a gift. It's not a gift if I take something from your house, right, without your permission. That's stealing. That's not receiving a gift. But if, 
if the giver, if I give the giver a chance to give it to me on his terms or her terms, then I can receive it as a gift. But as soon as I start grasping, it ceases to be a relationship of love, and then it becomes a conflict, right? And that's what happens in sin, is that Adam and Eve grasp at the thing they think they want, and it ends up being their ruin, their doom. Um, but that's fundamentally what original sin is, is grasping at what is meant to be received. And it makes us ashamed, and then we get into the vicious cycle that, oh, now God isn't going to like me anymore, so I better just keep going down this bad road because he can't forgive me anyway, and shame and guilt come in, and all these other dynamics that keep us far from God. Well, God is always trying to call us back into freedom, but again, always on his terms. There's this great line from William Blake's poem, Eternity. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I think of like a butterfly. You ever been like sitting in a garden and a butterfly lands on you or something like that? Or like the cottonwoods, you know, like when those all come off the trees. You ever try to grab a cottonwood? Like as soon as you grab it, the wind from your hand makes it go out of your hand. But if you just sit there long enough, one will just land on you. That's kind of like the joy that God calls us to live is you can't grasp at it. It has to be something just given to you. Um, but then once it's on you, you can't like grab it and make it your little pet. It has to, you have to just like, okay, that was a beautiful thing God gave me. Now what's the next thing and the next thing? But that's a relationship of trust, faith, why faith is necessary. Psychologically, addiction uses up desire. It is like a psychic malignancy sucking our life energy into specific obsessions and compulsions, leaving less and less energy available for other people and other pursuits. Spiritually, addiction is a deep-seated form of idolatry. The objects of our addictions become our false gods. These are what we worship, what we attend to, where we give our time and energy instead of love. Addiction then displaces and supplants God's love as the source and object of our deepest true desire. This is why addiction is so mischievous and evil. Not because, like let's say you struggle with the internet or screens or Netflix or something. Uh, Something that's not objectively sinful. But it's just like I find myself watching way too much YouTube and I know I should be doing my homework and it makes me stay up late and I don't get as much sleep or something like that. And it makes you lethargic and feel kind of bad about yourself, like, oh, I wasted all this time. And, and then you don't want to even start being productive and, and good. It's, it's using up the finite amount of desire that you have in your heart to do things. God puts desire in our heart, and it's holy, it's good. Um, but where we direct that desire really matters. Uh, and if you direct your desire towards some thing like... Uh, alcohol or drugs or or screens like you will finally run out of that desire and if you've ever felt like oh boredom or like the french call it ennui when you feel just like you don't want to do anything you don't even want to get out of bed or off the couch you're just like staring at something i remember my friend kyle once in seminary he walks into the common room where there was a fridge and he was just like restless and he just opens the fridge and we're all watching tv he's like I'm not hungry, I just want to eat something. <laughs> like, if you've ever felt like that, that's where you're, you've got, God's like stoking some fire in your heart, but you don't know where to point it. And you just kind of like pour it out like water on the sand and then you can't get it back again. So it's this psychic malignancy that's sucking your life energy out into all these little tributaries so that the rushing river that you're supposed to be pointing at God and others, that love that he's put in your heart, you're wasting it. That's why it's bad. 
Addiction exists wherever persons are internally compelled to give energy to things that are not their true desires. Who's ever given energy to something that you don't actually want? Right? We all have. That's what sin is. Addiction is a state of compulsion, obsession, or preoccupation that enslaves a person's will and desire. Attachment is the process that enslaves desire and creates the state of addiction. So what's attachment? Attachment is, uh, okay, before that, I talk about that. Important to remember, I've hinted to this, desire is not the problem. What happens a lot of times when you feel like something is an issue for you, you're like trying to cut back on some behavior that you know is not that helpful, um, it's like, I just need to cram that desire down. That's a bad desire, and I need to repress it. That's actually not the way. Um, Desire needs to be disciplined or directed toward its proper end, okay? You repress your desire long enough, and that, that's just going to make you explode, right? Desire is not the issue. It's pointing that desire at what you actually want. And a lot of times, I don't know about you, but I don't know what I want. I'm like Kyle at the fridge. Like, I'm hungry, but I don't, I'm not hungry, but I want to <laughs> eat. Like, I want something, but I don't know what it is. Or like when you scroll through your music, and you're like, what am I in the mood for? Like, I, I want to want something, but I don't even know what I want. Uh, that's when you like ask God, like, okay, God, now's the time. Tell me what I really want. But then you have to listen for the answer. And sometimes you don't like the answer. You're like, I don't want to do that, you know? But that's Christian living. That's where freedom and happiness actually resides and surrendering your own stupid plans to what God wants because you're, you're just getting yourself in all these messes. And then second really important thing to remember, we Christians believe in the dignity of the human person. That even someone who's addicted to drugs, say, and all their mind, all their body, all their energy goes towards getting their next fix of drugs, they are still free. No human being is finally, ultimately a slave. Every human being has freedom. And so even if something's really, really hard for you, some behavior that's, that's hard uh, to stop doing, or aversion addictions are like phobias, like the opposite, like you really, really don't like doing this thing that you know you should do or being around certain people that you know you should love like you are always free to love and to choose the loving thing um, even if it's really hard so the process of attachment this is how we get attached to things like the Turkish delight learning so the learning is the first time you try something like the first time you smoke a cigarette or something like that the first time you taste a pleasure that you didn't know existed Okay, like when you're a kid, it's all about the candy, right? But then you get older, then it's about other things. You get even older, and it's about different things. It could be money, security, power, whatever. But the first time you taste something, you like it, it provides some good feeling. Then you develop a habit. You learn, you associate that good feeling with the behavior, right? Um, gambling, uh, getting likes on Twitter, whatever, you know, like, it starts feeling good, and then you just keep looking for it. You keep going back there to get that fix of dopamine in your brain. Until finally you realize, like, okay, this has kind of got control of me, and I don't like it. Then you start to struggle with it. And as soon as you're struggling with a behavior to, like, stop doing as much of a thing as you are doing, then you've got an addiction on your hands. But that's how the process of attachment always goes, through those three steps. The way this happens on a neurological level is... Your body, your brain, like your whole body, wants to be in balance all the time. It's always looking to get on an even keel. Um, so what happens in the brain, uh, like a, a cellular level, is 
your, your neurons are communicating with these chemicals called neurotransmitters. And some of them make you feel good, some of them get you excited so that you can fight or fly away. Um, but these, these uh, neurons have both things that send signals and things that receive signals. And when you do a behavior, some things like drugs will actually mimic or stimulate release of certain chemicals and that's what makes you feel good. But also behaviors do that. Like the, one of the most addictive things in the world is uh, intermittent reward. So this is why slot machines are extremely addictive for people. Like if you've ever been to a casino or something and you've seen all these people just like mindlessly staring at a machine, hitting a button, it's because it's really, really addictive to get intermittent reward. That most of the time it doesn't do it, but every once in a while, unpredictably, it rewards you. Then your brain floods with dopamine or serotonin or whatever the neurotransmitter is. And you, you get this fix of, of euphoria, of good feeling. But because the brain wants to be in balance, when you get a rush of something like that, your brain's like, whoa, calm down. And the receiving end of those messages uh, does stuff to get you back in balance. Okay, so picture this neuron that's releasing these chemicals onto the other side of another neuron as like a crying child. Okay, and the parent is sitting there uh, and the child is crying and it's bugging the, the parent. So they try to feed back and say like, stop crying, <laughs> right? Stop making that noise. But the baby just keeps making the noise and they're trying to coax it and comfort it and feed it and give it all, but it's still crying and crying and crying. Okay, so the first is feedback, tell the baby to stop crying. So the neuron is telling it, stop sending so much of that signal. Until finally, it's just not doing it, so habituation sets in. So where you like, you just can't hear it. Like it's, you ever, you ever hear a noise? I used to, when I was living in the barracks out in California, a train went by every night and there had been an accident there years prior. So the, the conductor blew the horn like continuously for five minutes as the freight train was going by. And the first week I couldn't sleep. I kept waking up at one in the morning, three in the morning, five in the morning. Until finally I realized I wasn't waking up anymore because I habituated. I wasn't hearing it anymore. So that's like the, the other neuron just stops hearing it temporarily. Like a parent will hear their baby crying later that night, but right now I just, I can't stop you from crying, so I'm just gonna think about other things. And it's like background noise now. But if it keeps going on and on and on, it will get to the point where it's like adaptation is, this is where the metaphor breaks down because that's like the parent just plucking out their eardrum so they can't hear anything anymore. That's what, when you get to adaptation in the brain, that your, your neurons physically change to where they just get rid of those. If you're going to keep making the signal, I'm going to just cut off my receptors because this is too much. I can't stay in balance with all of this stimulus. And then that's when you get to the new normal. You must have this chemical. You must have this behavior to even stay in balance now because there's less of those receptors. You need more of the signal to get to where you, to get to level playing field. So then when you stop the behavior, it stresses you out. It makes you crap. Anybody addicted to coffee? I am. You ever not have coffee and then you get a headache? Okay, because your body needs coffee now to get to normal, like waking life. <laughs> normal people that aren't addicted to coffee can wake up. People that aren't can't because you need it to be normal. It's still worth it, but I'm just saying. <laughs> That's how the biochemistry of it works. Psychologically, what it ends up looking like is these five hallmarks of addiction. Tolerance means the more you have of it, the more you need of it. 
Okay, so you need more of a thing or a more intense version of the thing to get the same fix you used to get before. So the first time you smoke a cigarette, the nicotine gives you this head rush. Now you need like a pack to get that much. Right? So you, get, you build up your tolerance to where to, you finally get to adaptation where you can't not have it. Withdrawal symptoms, when you don't have the thing, you feel stressed out, your body produces cortisol and all this stuff. You feel angry, it's harder to pay attention to people. Self-deception, they're like, the classic for like a smoker is, oh, my grandma smoked till she was 90. She lived like a happy life. She died of natural causes. Like you have all these reasons why you know this is a bad behavior. It's harming you physically, psychologically. It's bad to be a slave to anything. But still, I make excuses. I deceive myself into thinking it's not a big deal. Loss of willpower. This is, uh, the classic is most addicts, before they finally surrender to God and his grace, think, I can handle it. I can just cut back. Well, your willpower is exactly what's compromised when you're attached to something. And so you lean on yourself, and you're doomed to failure. Okay, so you can't handle it. That's the point. None of us. St. Paul is coming up against the fact that I do what I do not want. I can't stop sinning, and I can't do the good that I know that Christ is calling me to do because I'm weak. But the other side of, of uh, loss of willpower is the I can't handle it. You know, like oh, my life is just a mess, like everybody's you know, managing their life better than me. I look on Facebook and everybody's doing fine and I'm just a mess and like, I'm just going to surrender to my self-destructive behavior or self-defeating behavior and just like big drama queen, like, oh, you know, I'm just a big problem, I guess. You know, that's it's the same problem. It's just like two sides of the same coin. And finally, distortion of attention. This is where if you've ever sat down to pray and you're like attached to something, and you find it really difficult to pray, or you're sitting in a conversation with somebody, and you're like, isn't it time for dessert yet? You know, like, and you're not thinking about what they're saying because you're wanting something else. That means you're attached to the thing. You can't be present to what you're doing right now or who you're with right now because you're addicted. Kinds of addictions. This is why, this is why it matters for everybody because everybody's addicted to something. And this is the Gerald May thing. He, he lists this whole big thing. I'll just throw up on the screen in a second. But the three main Categories are security addictions, attraction addiction, and aversion addiction. So attraction addictions is anything that good that you like to have, but you tend to overdo it. Aversion addictions is something, or maybe some trauma or some, something unrelated, but makes you, makes you not want to be around a thing, or like spiders or whatever. Like you, you just like, for some reason, you overreact to something that's pretty innocuous um, because of the, it's the process of attachment, but in reverse. You learned and formed a habit until you... Uh, struggled with this thing that, like, I can't get on a plane because I keep, I'm addicted to keep thinking about what if something goes wrong in the plane? You know, like, people that are afraid of something, they just can't, like, control it uh, for the same reasons. But security addictions are interesting because all of us need money, power, you know, autonomy, and all of us need human relationships. But these are the things that, these are the things that create sort of a sense of well-being. Like, I need these things to be secure, to be safe, to be happy. But um, they're easily made into an idol, right? You all need a certain amount of money, in, or in other words, like resources. You need a certain amount of power or control over your own life, some freedom to decide which way you're going to go in life. You don't want to be somebody's slave. And you all need human relations. You all need each other to be happy. But when we're attached and addicted to those things, we're not free. And so I tend to use my human relationships to feed some selfish need rather than being fully present and loving to another person. I tend to kind of 
fixate on money and power more than I actually need them because they make me feel more safe. And freedom and security don't always exist, coexist very easily. Um, this is why the, like the vows of poverty and chastity and obedience are really important witnesses to the world from people that consecrate their lives to Christ because they give up in many ways. They still are provided for. They don't have no money, but they don't have any of their own money. They don't like carve off their little part of their world and like, this is my husband or wife. This is my house. This is my stuff. This is my safe place. You're sort of like, wherever God leads me, he's going to provide for me. He's going to be my husband or my, you know, my spouse. He's going to be my friend. He's going to provide for my money and my safety. Um, and when you see somebody live like that, totally free, like St. Francis, like he converted people just by living his life because they're like, oh yeah, I'm really you know, like hung up on money and power and stuff that really doesn't matter. Okay, so the, all these things are potential addictions. This is just a, a list. You could list five or six times as many of these as, as I have up here, but just a few, candy, chewing gum, laugh. Yeah, have you ever met somebody like addicted to, to uh, these things? Like exercise, eating, hair twisting. I remember I was next to a, a woman on the plane once who was like, she must have been avert, like had an aversion to planes because she was all stressed and she was sitting there twisting her hair the whole time and like pulling hairs out and I'm like, she doesn't even know she's doing that. It's like her comfort blanket was just to like mess with her hair all. And this happens to us. We get these compulsions we, we're not even aware of. Okay. Is there such a thing as good addiction? So you saw up there probably maybe children. Like parents can be addicted to their children. Uh, like their whole lives are just consumed with like making sure their children are okay and driving them to soccer practice and make sure they get into the best schools and like their whole lives become about their children. Well, isn't that a good thing? Shouldn't they be worried about their children? May says, no addiction is good. No attachment is beneficial. They impede human freedom and diminish the human spirit. It is surely good for parents to care for their children and for people to be kind to one another and to seek God. Some people are addicted to helping people. Some people are addicted to uh, religion. You know, some people are addicted to things that are good, but they, they turn them into something bad by becoming, they're grasping at it. They're not letting God be God. They're not letting people be people. They're like, you're part of my making myself feel good world that I've created. You're part of my vicious cycle instead of being free. So it would be wonderful if we could make a habit of such activities, but there's a vast difference between doing these things because we freely choose and doing them because we are compelled. In the first case, the motivation is love. In the second, slavery. The things themselves are simply part of creation and God made them inherently good. The destructiveness of addiction lies in our slavery to these things, turning our desire into compulsion with ugly, loveless consequences for ourselves and our world. So being addicted to religion. Have you ever met anybody who's like really religious but is just kind of a sour, mean person? <laughs> they haven't let their love of God actually be love. It's just this slavish obedience to God's law. And they're like, I'm doing what God wants me to do and it's making me really unhappy and you better do that too. Otherwise, I'm going to judge you and make you unhappy. You're like, it's, there's, it's just a slavery. It's not freedom. It's not joy because it's an addiction. It's, it's part of your... Um, Selfish short circuit. So mind tricks that keep us going. This is really for like things like prayer. When these things come up, like, hmm, you know, you realize some pattern in your life that's not helpful. Uh, be aware of what your mind will want to do because what addiction does, what sin does, is it divides the self. And there's the part that wants to be good and there's the part that wants to keep being bad. Right? There's the part that wants to get up, go to bed early tonight so I can get up tomorrow and work out and have a great day. And there's a part of me that's like, eh, we'll do that Monday. Um, 
So you have to fight those, those, two, those two selves are going to fight. And these are the tricks the bad self uses. Denial. I don't really have a problem. This is not a big deal. Other people have much, much worse problems than me. Okay. By the way, this, this is uh, Sandra Bullock from a movie, 28 Days. Great movie on addiction. Uh, that face is awesome, too. She's just like, this is when she first starts rehab. Um, rationalization. Oh, it's not a big deal. Uh, other people do it. Hiding. Okay, this is classic, like you're hiding a behavior. Hmm, if you're not cool with other people knowing that you're doing this or doing it as much as you're doing it, probably a problem. Delaying tactics. I can handle it, I can't handle it. I'll, I'll, deal, that, I'll deal with that later. And then breakdown. This is the total drama, like, oh, you know, somebody who's just like, oh, I guess I'm the black sheep of the family, okay? You know, um, you know they make themselves like a big deal, like their addiction makes them special. Right? That's when you're just like, your whole life is just this bomb that's going off and hurting people, you know what I'm saying? So, but you rationalize it, you use, you use all these tactics to make it seem like um, I don't need to change or I can't change or it's not even worth it. Um, I'm, I'm so broken that I can't. The spiritual cost of addiction, this is St. Augustine is my big hero. I wrote my thesis on uh, his confessions. It's a great book, wrote it in the 300s, like the first autobiography ever written. It's very self-disclosive. He, he tells the, really the contents of his heart and especially like his early life and how he came out of sin and, and some of his bad behaviors. And this is one of his most famous phrases in the Confessions. Talking to God, he says, Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. Meaning like, why didn't I see this before? He says, You were within me, but I was outside. And it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. He's talking about idolatry. He's talking about addiction. I wanted you, but I directed that desire to the things you made. And the things you made were good, but they should have lifted my eyes up and my heart up to you. But I plunged myself into them and became frustrated. You were within, but I was outside. That's such an awesome phrase. God is in here, in your heart, where those desires are. He's, he's like right there. It's the closest thing. If, if you want God... He'll give himself to you. But instead, he was outside. Have you ever felt that way? Like, I'm outside of myself. I'm so preoccupied with the things in the world and making sure I have everything that I need that I don't ever go in here and actually ask myself, like, what is it that I, that I actually want? Because that's a scary place. And this is, this is where you get into the spiritual stuff. you got the chemical. You have the psychological. This is the soul, the real spiritual cost of addiction. The thing about God is that he will not be an object of your addiction. This is, this is kind of frustrating. Like, if you've ever tried to start praying, like getting a habit of prayer going, and at first you feel awesome, like, oh, man, why wasn't I doing this before? I feel so much better. It's easier to be good uh, because I'm, like, trying to build my friendship with God. Every time I kneel down in front of the Eucharist, I, like, I feel like he's here, you know? And you're advancing, going from good to better in service of God and your neighbor. And then nothing changes except it just stops feeling good. You, you keep doing what you've been doing before, but now it's, prayer is dry, you're distracted, it's harder to pray, you don't feel like staying the entire time. You said you were going to stay for 10 minutes, but it's been three minutes and it feels like it's been an hour. You know, like, it stops. Well, God is making you choose him regardless of what he gives you. Right? It's like visiting your mother or something. Like, are you visiting me for me, or are you just like, because I give you money every time you stop by? 
You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, that's how a relationship works. Otherwise, I'm just addicted to you. Otherwise, I'm just replacing some other habit with the habit of you feed me, you, and I'm still in control. And you're like this button I push on the slot machine and you give me a reward. Well, God will not let you do that. But that's good. It's good because you can't, you can't be addicted to him. You can't be a slave to him. You can only be a free friend, a son, or daughter. Okay, so this is a great phrase from May. He says, God calls us to a life of easy joy, but we don't get to be in control. Meaning like in, in heaven, just like in Eden, everything is provided for us. God wants us to have what we need. He doesn't want us to suffer. But we are going to have to suffer because we're sinners. And we are overly, what, what our sin is, is demanding to be God, demanding to be in control. And so that's always going to require sacrifice to return to an easy friendship with God. Because it means you are God and I'm not. Priest in the seminary used to say, like, do that ten times for your penance. Just say, you are God, and I am not. You are God, and I am not. Like, to keep reminding yourself, I'm not God. I don't get to be in control. I can't provide for my own needs. I have to depend on him. That means I have to have faith in him that he's trustworthy, and he'll give me what I want. So, the way out of this, of this slavery, the way out of idolatry, is the desert. You have to go out, and we just got done with Lent a few weeks ago, but the, the Exodus story of the Israelites in the desert is God training his people to stop being idolaters. They have to leave Egypt, this land of idolatry. They have to leave slavery to enter first before the promised land into this desert, this huge desert, and wander for 40 years. And God trains them to depend on him. And in the desert, what is there not a lot of? Water. Right? But continuously this water keeps following them around and it just gushes up in the middle of the desert. There's not a lot of food. And what does God do? He rains down manna, this bread from heaven, and feeds them. And then they're like, oh, we're sick of the bread. We want some meat. He's like, okay, I'm going to give you so much meat that it's going to come out your nostrils. It's one of the great phrases in Exodus. He gives them all these quail that come from the, from the west and they like, land and they're just like, oh my gosh, there's enough quail to feed 12 armies here. You know? God continues to provide for them and to train them to depend on him. Before they can enter the promised land and set up camp in their own little houses, they have to go out into the land of unknowing, the land of dependence. Okay, so what do you learn in the desert? This is Jesus with the, the devil tempting him in the desert. Jesus did his 40 days in the desert, um, and he was tempted. What do you learn in the desert? Because if you do this, like let's say your desert is to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up social media, or I'm going to give up candy, or I'm going to quit smoking, or I'm going to do X, Y, Z, to try to like detach from something that I'm preoccupied with, that I'm obsessed with or compelled by. Well, the next time you want that thing and you deny yourself that, it's a desert because you're saying like, all right, well, this is what I've always used to control, like to get myself in balance and to feel good and to, so what am I going to do instead? Uh, A lot of people that are like trying to lose weight or trying to live healthier, they'll say like, I'm going to stop eating junk food and instead I'm going to exercise and that's going to just replace a bad habit with a good habit. But what about just like living in the space of recognizing I'm a human being, and I want infinite, perfect happiness that never ends. Uh, Like, does that exist? (laughs) You know, instead of just I'm just going to go to the next thing and the next thing and next thing and just and and keep living life like that and not thinking about that fact of what do you what do you really want? 
Okay, so you have to like let yourself hurt a little bit by going into the desert in order to learn the facts of grace. This is a May phrase. The facts of grace is that grace always exists. It's always present. It's always available to anyone who asks for it. God does not make you say any magic words. If you ask him, Lord, give me more patience with this person I'm having trouble loving, he'll give you the patience, but you actually have to want it. <laughs> you, can, you know, like, because part of you just wants to judge this person or say something mean or, or write them off. You, if you ask for the patience and you really want it, God will give it to you. If you really want the chastity or, or, the, or the self-control, God will give you that, but a lot of us are like St. Augustine. His thing was chastity, but he found it really hard to be chaste. And his famous prayer was, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet, because he still wants to enjoy his sin. Like, you have to be fully committed that I'm going to go to the desert where I don't get to have this comfort anymore because I'm depending on you for my comfort. And you get to give it however you want to give it. I don't get to control you. That's scary. But grace is always present, it's always available, and it's always victorious. God never loses in a fight against the devil. The only time the devil wins is when we let him win. This is why in in the desert, Jesus uh, stands up to the devil when he starts tempting him. And he's like, why don't you turn this this stone into a bread? Like, why don't you, you you know, feed yourself? Use your power, your freedom to to feed yourself rather than depending on God. He's not going to provide for you. You better provide for yourself. Jesus faces the devil square in the face and he doesn't come up with some argument. He doesn't reason with him. He just quotes scripture. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Even Jesus leans on the Father. So in the moment of temptation, if you're struggling with a behavior or something, or trying to live a more faithful Christian life and you're having a hard time, lean on him. Because he's way stronger and your defenses are totally compromised by concupiscence anyway. So don't depend on your own willpower. Okay, so this is the last thing. A lot of times when, when we confront our own weaknesses, our own problem areas, or the, you know, like take the seven deadly sins and... I won't list them out because I always end up missing one. But look them up on Google and figure out which one's hard for you or which two or three are hard for you. Um, most of us will say, like, let's, I want to reform my behavior. I want to be better at this thing. I want to stop doing as much bad and do a little bit more good. But once, what ends up happening is, like I said, you just kind of replace one habit with another. But what God is calling you to in your relationship with him is not reformation but transformation where you actually confront the deepest desires of your heart in honesty and simplicity and say, Lord, I can't, I can't give myself what I'm looking for. You have to give it to me. And so reformation is like going on the edges of the desert where you kind of like go into discomfort for a little while, but then you go to some other city where like, okay, this is a healthier place than I was in before, but you're still, you're still like in your own little world and not letting God really transform you. The transformation only happens in the desert where you have no resources to provide for yourself. You have to depend on God. And so this is a beautiful phrase in the, in the May book. Every struggle with addiction, no matter how small and no matter what our spiritual interests may be, will include at least brief encounters with spaciousness. It's a great word. Through the spaciousness will come some homeward call, some invitation to transformation. If we answer yes, even with the tiniest and most timid voice, our struggle becomes consecrated. Consecration means dedication to God. It occurs when we claim our deepest desire for God beneath, above, and beyond all other things. So encountering that spaciousness, that's a scary place. Like if you, if you deny yourself some, something you like, maybe just something simple in Lent, like chocolate or sugar or whatever, coffee, 
you get to the point where you want the thing, you like some trigger, like after a meal or when you wake up in the morning or something like that. And it's like, what am I going to put in the space where that used to go in my life? Well, you can just put something else in that space. Like instead of coffee, you're just going to drink tea and like, it's like a thing you like a little bit less. And then you just, what's the point of that? The real transformation happens when you let, you live in that space, that emptiness, that vacuum and say some you know, wellspring of water is going to gush out of the desert here. Somehow. I don't know how. But I'm not in control. I'm going to let God kind of show up here. Um, I'm going to skip the stories and just go five guideposts on the way home. Honesty, dignity, community, responsibility, simplicity. This, again, is not just about addiction. This is about Christian living. And God knows, like, when you're in college and you're living the college life, there's plenty of temptation out there to not live exactly a Christian life. Or the temptation is like, I'm a Christian and they're not, and just to kind of look out at the world as a bunch of evil sinners and, and to be you know, like, I'm a good Christian and, and to be like that sour-faced kind of um, bitter Christian rather than a really joyful, free person who's like, yeah, uh, I love God and I'm not ashamed of it and I hope everyone wants to love God because it makes you happy. That's what you're actually looking for. That's a, that's a contagious evangelist. But you have to have these five guideposts. Honesty means not lying to yourself, not lying to God, not lying to other people. It doesn't mean you have to disclose every struggle that you've ever had. Like, say, you're addicted to pornography or something like that. It's something that you're, you're ashamed of, but it's got some, some control of you. Like, you have to be, if, if it's hard to be honest about some addiction that you have, you have to at least be honest with someone. First of all, yourself and God, but some other person to, to own this thing and get help. You know, but if you, if you keep denying the problem, denying the addiction, then it's never going to get better. Dignity. Remember that you have dignity. God wants you to be free. God made you free in his image. Okay, so it's never, he's never, God hates sin because, not because it offends him or hurts him, but because it hurts us. And it lessens our dignity. He wants you to know you're loved and our own vicious cycles. And sometimes it's caused by trauma. Sometimes the thing was given to you, the thing that you're addicted to was given to you by someone it didn't love you, you know? Um, and that's why this has become a problem. Or some other place in your heart where you don't feel loved, or you feel wounded, or you feel afraid, like this is what I go to to regulate myself, to, to when I feel bad or feel alone or feel hungry or tired or depressed. This is the thing I do to medicate it. Well, it, it, just remember that you're free, and God wants you to be free. And he's not going to take anything from you uh, that's going to make your life worse. If he's asking for you to give him something... It's because he wants to give you something better. Community. Nobody can live the Christian life alone. Even hermits that live out in the middle of nowhere and just pray, like they, even they have community. Even they check in with other people. Um, responsibility. This means like this is your. This is, might not be your fault, but it is your problem. Like original sin. A lot of people say, like, isn't it unfair that we all had to suffer because Adam and Eve sinned? Like our first parents. Why do we all have to? Well. It's not may not be your fault, but it's your problem. You know, like we all inherited this heart that tends to go after things it doesn't actually want, and then get caught in these dead ends. And you need to take responsibility for that fact, to repent of it, to go to live into the freedom. And then simplicity. It's not easy to be a Christian, but it's very simple, right? Do good, avoid evil, love God with your whole heart, your whole self, your whole mind strength and love your neighbor as yourself it's it sounds 
well, it's, it's very, very difficult to live it. Anybody who's tried to. Anybody perfect at it yet? No, none of us. But it's actually really simple. And if you're, if you're addicted to something, if something is distorting your attention, your ability to love God or other people, just stop. <laughs> you just have to stop feeding it. Um, it's not easy, but it's very simple. Gerald May says that if you want to know if you're addicted to something, stop doing it. And if you can't stop, you're addicted. <laughs> Period. It's a simple test. Um, but that's, that's it. Like, if somebody, if, like, say you're, you know somebody who's a, an addict, like a real addict who has a problem and it's ruining their relationship and they can't hold a job down because they're addicted to drugs or sex or whatever, um, if you are not telling them to simply stop doing that, you're not helping them. If you're like, just cut back a little bit. Or you're fun when you have just a couple drinks, but not, you know, don't get all, you know, extra or whatever. Don't, don't send it as much as you're sending, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, no, that's not going to help. If you're addicted to something, you have to stop. And anybody who loves you is going to tell you, stop doing that behavior. Uh, and that at the end of it all is this. This is the last slide, I promise. The thing about being human is that God... He made us for this world, but our hearts long for more than this world. That's why, like, dogs don't get depressed or anxious. Dogs are always happy. <laughs> because they're made for this world. And they love you, and they love food, and they love chasing their tail, and squirrels, and cars, and everything. Like, they, this world is just, like, paradise to them. But to us, we all know we want eternal life. We want something perfect. We want something even better than this world, than what these th- the things in the world can give us. We, we like the things... Um, we might even love the things, and that's when it becomes a problem. We love them more than we love God. But God is always calling us to some, like, some better thing. And so everything in this world is always going to finally disappoint. Because it's not what you're looking for. You're looking for something higher. And so this beautiful phrase, I think, kind of sums it all up, the Christian life. The truth is we are never meant to be completely satisfied. To live as a child of God is to live with love and hope and growth but it is also to live with longing, with aching for a fullness of love that is never quite within your grasp. As attachments lighten and idols fall, we will enjoy increasing freedom, but at the same time our hearts will feel an even greater, purer, deeper ache. This particular pain is one that never leaves us. Great news. But if you've ever seen something like really beautiful, um, or had a really beautiful experience, or a great conversation, or loved somebody really a lot and lost them, you know this ache. Um, you, you, with everything good, there's always this sadness because you're like, it's only pointing me to something even better, even more lasting, even more eternal. Like the love that I have for you, person, is just a faint reflection of what I'm actually looking for, which is perfect, eternal love. And that's God. So all of the goods of the earth are always meant to make us look higher. And that's why we can't make an idol of anything. Why we can't um, let ourselves be a slave to created things because it's the creator who wants us to be free. That's all I have to say about that. Okay, any questions? <laughs> Thank you, guys. You can just finish with a prayer. If there are any questions, I'll, I'll take them. But in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Father, we thank you for this time together in this year, for all that you've taught us, all that you've given us. We give you thanks especially in our struggles uh, to love you more, that you would provide us with the grace we need, the grace even to 
ask for your grace or to want it, to want to change and be transformed so we can move from better, good to better in service of you, in love of you and of our neighbor. If there's any wounds in our hearts, places of a feeling of abandonment or fear of depending more radically on you, that you would heal those places in our hearts and that we would be able to renounce any lies about ourselves or life or the world that keep us from being happy and joyful and living in freedom. Pray through the intercession of our Blessed Mother, Mother of your Son Jesus, as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.